Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. More breathing room for City of Hamilton employees who face termination over their vaccination status. The CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association chimes in on the affordability issue. More talk, but no action when it comes to gun control in the U.S. Will America's baby formula shortage be felt here in Canada? A familiar sound returns for people who live and work in downtown Hamilton. And we talk with a disabled paddleboarder who plans to Conquer the Great Lakes. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. There is such an array of factors that need to be uh, considered. Uh, some, an arbitrator may reinstate them. An arbitrator may uphold the termination. An arbitrator may uh, reinstate them with back pay, non-back pay. This is the array of, of, of circumstances that we're going to be presented with. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. That's the voice of Laura Fontana, the director of Hamilton's HR department, after City Council voted to extend the deadline for non-vaccinated city employees to get their shot or lose their jobs. A deadline has been extended from June 1st to October 1st. And one of the big reasons why has been the impassioned speeches from our next guest. Esther Pauls is the councillor for Ward 7 with the City of Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Esther, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. A little bit tired, but great. I can imagine. Uh, you are credited with being one of the people who've helped convince your fellow colleagues around the council table to offer this four-month reprieve. Why is this issue so important for you? Well, somebody did ask me and said, why do you care so much? And, you know, beside uh, the high cost that the city will have to pay financially, I look after my constituents and every resident of Hamilton, their taxes. Besides that, we're talking about people's life. I've received hundreds and hundreds of emails, and some of them I read over and over. The passionate, the reasons why they couldn't get vaccinated, the reason why they don't. And we have a very small number. We have a 95% of uh, our city employees vaccinated. So the reason is because this is people. We're dealing with people's lives. And we're not dealing with somebody saying, can I, you fix my pothole? Okay, you fix my sidewall. Okay, you cut this tree or a party. This is people's life. And that's why I'm fighting so hard. 70% of our listeners who voted in our Twitter poll question yesterday say the unvaccinated workers in the city of Hamilton should not be fired. Did you hear uh, much of the same from your constituents? And were there some that said, hey, Esther, I mean, we, we have to get rid of these people? Well, yeah, really few said we have to get rid of these people. But in life, when, uh, I want to ask them, uh, where is 100% compliance anywhere in life? Tell me. I have never seen 100% everything. We have a 95%. This is good enough. And if they're talking about saving people's lives, show me the facts. Show me that the vaccinated or the non-vaccinated are spreading it. You know what? I had one gentleman, and he said he's been in the uh, force for 36 years, uh, HSR, never missed a day through the pandemic. He's not vaccinated, but the ones that were vaccinated were getting sick. So tell me, give me the facts. I told him, how are we keeping everybody safe? And stop blaming the unvaccinated. We're dividing a city. We're dividing people. I'm tired of that. I'm tired. 
There's nowhere in life that you get 100%. I remember when they told me, oh, if we got 75%, 80%, that would be good. Now we're at 95 and saying, well, strong-handed, punitive action, and say, no, 100% now. We're, nobody has done that. Tell me a city that has done that. Do you know Burlington? They're t- t- telling the employees, okay, if you don't want, just get tested. You know, that's a better way. Uh, Ottawa, uh, Windsor, all of them, they rescinded it. You know, most of the counties and, and even um, institutions like Mohawk College, they dropped uh, a- a- everywhere, but not Hamilton. I don't understand that. We have a 95%. That should be good enough to say we're keeping everybody safe. And you know what? I don't go ask around. Are you vaccinated or not? So uh, there's no answer to that. People can't just say, let's fire them all. These are human beings that's going to lose their homes. And, and not only a feed their children. Oh, if I could show you some of the emails all weekend, the long weekend, I read them over, and my heart breaks for them, saying, you know, for whatever reason, I don't even want to know the reason. They know, and that should be good enough for the city of Hamilton. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Esther Pauls, counselor for Ward Seven with the city of Hamilton. We're talking about uh, the city's non-vaccinated employees um, now facing a October first deadline to get. Their shot or potentially lose their jobs. What is this four-month window going to help the city do? Is it just analyze the cost ramifications should arbitration continue to go ahead, uh, lawsuits filed by the individuals? What's this time going to be used for? Well, this time is going to be used to be transparent to the citizens of Hamilton of the cost. Tell me, whoever, and I said it yesterday, whoever buys a house without knowing the cost, or whoever, uh, are we supposed to give a blank check to HR, to the city, and say, here's a blank check, whatever it costs, as long as we get rid of all these people? Uh, how cruel. To me, uh, it does not make sense. We need to know the cost. We need to know how much it's going to cost. So, believe it or not, I, the last minute this motion came up, I was early at City Hall yesterday at 7 o'clock, and I was thinking, how can we do it? Because the six counselors that voted against that would not reconsider. And that, I couldn't do nothing about it. I couldn't do it. They have to tell me. So we thought, I thought of this. I thought, you know what? This is not a reconsideration. This is a breach of trust from these counselors that did not count the cost before we fired them. They did not count that. And I think we never debated it, and we should have. We should have debated how much it's going to cost. Is it $10 million, $20 million, $30 million? Let us know, and then we'll fire them if that's what you want. But don't do that now. I want to know the cost, and then we'll figure it out. We only have about a minute. The new deadline is October 1st. That's 23 days before the next municipal election. Could that present a problem at all? Well, they, they thought about it. Uh, it might, but I think uh, we will get uh, some estimate before that. I really do. Uh, you know, I have people that are uh, legal and people that do accounting. They said it's, it's not that hard to figure out. And I think uh, we asked uh, GM uh, Mike, and he said he, they could get some figure, maybe not all the figure, but maybe within two months we could get some uh, a window uh, to look what the figure is, and then we can figure it out. 
Look at uh, even the Red Hill. We thought it would cost. I really thought it would only cost a million or two. We're almost at twenty million counting. So, uh, you know, so uh, we need to know the cost of this. I'm tired of not being so transparent and say, yeah, we're going to know the cost and then we'll decide what to do. So that's what was my motion about. Councillor Pauls, appreciate your time today. Thank you for joining us and enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Thank you. That is Esther Pauls, Councillor for Ward 7 in the city of Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It is one of the big topics in this provincial election campaign and falls under the affordability umbrella. We know that gas prices are going up, food prices on the rise, higher interest rates these days, inflation the highest it's been in a long, 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 long time. House prices, especially in this city, we know this, have catapulted into a different stratosphere. About five years ago, the average price in the city was uh, roughly $500,000. It's now over a million. And many people, especially first-time home buyers, are left on the sidelines. They just can't compete with those GTA buyers. They, they can't get into a home that's worth a million bucks. That's a mortgage payment they just can't afford. And so a new survey is out by Abacus Data for the Ontario Real Estate Association that shows only a small minority of Ontarians think that it's a good idea for homeowners to sell their homes via auction. Some people believe that ending blind bidding, in which you don't know what the other person is bidding, and this is where we see those $100,000, $200,000, $500,000 over asking price uh, real estate sales are coming in. But still, not many Ontarians think that Having an open auction-style process is the way to go. Let's ask our next guest what he thinks about this. His name is Tim Hudak. He's the CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mr. Hudak, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Glad to be back on the show. 18% of survey respondents say they'd like to see blind bidding and real estate come to an end. That's a pretty small number. What are your views on blind bidding versus that open auction-style process? Well, it should be the homeowner's choice. And, and l- let me tell you why. First, uh, you know, I get the frustration and I, I've been through it. Or when Debbie and I were looking for a home and we go to one place and we, you know, picture where the kids are going to be and how to, you know, what we're going to do in the backyard and all of that. And then you find out you lose and then you go to another place and the same thing happens. Like I totally get the buyer frustration. I've been there. But the way to solve that is to bring in more homes that people can afford starter homes for first-time buyers, move-up homes when the kids come along, and also some spaces, I think, for empty nesters so they can stay in the city in Hamilton and you know stay close to the grandkids that free up the family home. But a lot of people have said, well, we need to end the blind bidding process to blow up the traditional offer process we've had since you know the days of John A. McDonald. So we said, okay, well, let's see what people say about that. And we asked them the question and said, should government tell you they can only sell your home one way and that's through a process where everybody lays out their offers on the table. Only uh, 18%, less than one in five Ontarians said yes, the government should force you. The vast majority say no, the homeowner should make the choice. Are there other options that should be considered apart from just boosting the supply? Are there any other creative solutions out there in keeping house prices from skyrocketing? Oh, for sure. I mean, we wake up every day at the Real Estate Association, how can we help? Uh, create that next generation of Ontario uh, homeowners. I mean, it is your single most precious asset. It's where you raise your family, where you feel 
most yourself and at home, and it, and it pays off in the long run. So we put together a plan, and CHO listeners can go see it in its entirety. It's called a home for everyone dot info again a home for everyone dot info and first of all we say we should give a break for first time home buyers we should eliminate the land transfer tax for first time buyers in its entirety or at least double that rebate uh, up to eight thousand dollars uh, number two look for more land that is not environmentally sensitive but scheduled for developing get that into production there's a lot of excess now commercial and government space due to work from home, you can convert that to housing, and also intensifying in urban areas, particularly along transit lines that, you know, the city and the government has built over the years. Uh, There's four solutions for you right there. Talking about housing and uh, the housing affordability issue, which is a big topic in the election campaign with Tim Hudak, the CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. The four main political parties in this province promising to build one and a half million homes over the next 10 years. That's, you know, 150,000 homes a year, which sounds like a lot. What impact is that going to have? That is the best way to actually get those keys closer to hand for those struggling to have a place uh, of their their own. Uh, let me tell you where that, that comes from. There was a housing affordability uh, task force, uh, Rector of the Province sponsored. I had the honor of, of sitting on that. We thanks to the work we're doing at the Ontario Real Estate Association. And here's where the number comes from. It, this, this will knock your socks off. We actually built fewer homes in the 2000s than we used to in the 1970s. Like, that's nuts. we got more people, more immigration. The millennials are coming of age into the home buying market, and we built fewer homes. So the $1.5 million over 10 years, you're right, it's a, it's a big pace. We've not built that many since that era. However, what that does is build enough homes for those coming into the marketplace. And secondly, it's helping us play catch-up to the decades of underbuilding in the 2000s. The good news is, Rick, that last year we actually did build uh, in this province uh, over 100,000 homes. That's the most in 30 years. So I do feel optimistic because now we're starting to turn the corner with real ideas on the table. And as you said, all parties are focusing on the campaign. So I'm feeling more optimistic than I have in the last number of years. Do we have enough skilled tradespeople coming into the workforce to build all these new homes? Not yet. Uh, and that's an excellent question. So I don't think you get there right away. Although, as I said, we're heading in the right direction. One of the recommendations is to um, make sure we have more people in the skilled trades two ways. Far too often we are discouraging people from getting in the trades, and, and any listener to Good Morning Hamilton knows if you did any projects in the last couple of years, prices are really high. It's good money. You're making over six, K, uh, six figures a, a year in the trades. So, number one, encourage more into the trades. And number two, we are calling on the federal government to change our immigration system to give points to people who have skills in the trades. Right now, that actually does not help you, and we need tradespeople. They tend to focus on people with university degrees, science backgrounds, all that. That's all well and good, but also give points to skilled tradespeople so they can help build the new homes that we need for our next generation. We have one more minute with uh, Tim Hudak, the CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. Uh, I was on Twitter last night, as I'm uh, apt to do, and I see that Tim Hudak is trending on Twitter. I'm like, what's going on? Uh, you participated in a virtual fundraiser for a Liberal candidate in uh, the Toronto area yesterday. As the former Ontario PC leader, did that feel weird? And is Aria, <laughs> is Aria supporting the Liberals? No, we, um, we don't support any uh, political party. We support, you know, more homes that people can afford. And 
more homeowners in our province. Um, and we actually put out a report card on the parties. Uh, Rick, so your, your listeners can, can go and look at uh, OREA, O-R-E-A dot com, and we lay out how we can actually get more homes built uh, and also raise consumer protection in our province on real estate transactions. You can see how the parties rank. You know, one thing, you know, when, when I was in, in politics, I always noticed that who do you really trust when you're, when you're getting advice? And the first thing politicians tend to look to is people they know, they like, and they trust in those fields. So I had the idea we should get more real estate uh, agents elected to office provincially and municipally. We had over 25, I think, win in municipal campaigns last time around. We're encouraging a real estate experienced professionals to run for office in all parties. Because you can, you know, I can make my case, and, and you're doing a great job in CHL talking about it, but ultimately the doors close, and it's the elected officials who make decisions. And when creating more homes and more opportunity for homeownership and good rentals is so pivotal in this election campaign and so important to average families, that is a great idea to make sure that all parties have people with real estate and background. That's why I was part of that event, and I would do that for any party. This issue is just so critical to hardworking Canadians. We will definitely do our part in continuing the conversation. Tim, appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. You bet. Have a great day now. You too. That's Tim Hudak, CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. America's gun control debate flaring up once again following this week's tragedy in Texas. But at this point, it remains all talk and no action. For the sake of these children, these 9-year-olds, these 10-year-olds, these 11-year-olds, these beautiful children, please think if it was your child or grandchild. That's Majority Leader Chuck Schumer saying, listen, enough is enough. We've got to do something. Nothing is being done. What should be done? What can be done? Robert J. Cottrell is a law professor at George Washington University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Robert, good morning. How are you? Uh, fine. How are you? I'm good. Uh, this might not be a, a surprising statistic for you. It might be to many of our listeners, and that is that the United States has 5% of the world's population, but has 46% of the world's civilian-owned guns. So nearly half of the guns owned by civilians on this planet belong to those in the U.S. And a Pew Research Center survey conducted last July shows that 30% of Americans personally own a firearm, which amounts to about 90 million people. Robert, what is America's infatuation with guns? Uh, Well, uh, by the way, it'd be interesting to look at Canada, which also has a fairly heavy, robust uh, civilian uh, arms ownership, uh, and, and look at uh, the statistics that we might get there, but there is a, a well. Well, let me let me let me tell you: C- civilian-owned okay. guns per one hundred people in the U.S. one hundred twenty. So one hundred twenty okay. guns per one hundred people in Canada. Okay. That number is thirty-four point seven. Uh, by world standards, that's still pretty robust. It is. Canada's higher than Australia, Norway, Israel, the UK, Japan. Yes, certainly a high number, but obviously not as high as the U.S. But there, there's a certain element of fascination with guns in the U.S. for, I don't know why. Well, I think there are a variety of historical reasons for that. Um, you know, you would obviously get the, the question of uh, the frontier. Uh, and, of course, you would come back and say, well, Canada had a frontier. Uh, Australia did as well. But I think the frontier experience made a uh, made a part of it. Uh, the idea of the Revolutionary War and the the notion of the the embattled farmer 
uh, who heard the shot, uh, who fired the shot, heard around the world, uh, is a part of it. Uh, racial conflict, uh, I think, played a uh, uh, played a significant part uh, in developing uh, the gun culture in the United States. Um, and uh, the fact that a civil war was fought on uh, uh, on our own territory. In fact, the 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 bloodiest war we ever had was was our own civil war, and and that I think probably contributed uh, uh, to it as well. So I, I think there are a variety of these things, and of course, uh, the fact that uh, we have a Second Amendment in our Constitution, uh, which. Uh, protects the right of uh, civilians to uh, uh, to have arms. All of those things were uh, 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 have contributed, I, I think, to the gun culture in the United States. Uh, the latest uh, school massacre, as we know, happened in Texas. It is one of uh-huh. 44 states where you can only be, well, if you're 18, you can buy a rifle, you can buy a gun. There are only right. three states in which you can buy alcohol at age 18, which seems pretty backwards to me. Well, look, uh, we send eight, you know, we send 18-year-olds to war. I think, uh, you know, at some time, uh, we basically decided that uh, an 18-year-old ends up being uh, in a, or should be regarded as an adult. An 18-year-old can vote. Uh, people talk about, okay, an 18-year-old can buy a, a, a gun in the United States. Uh, there were 18 and 19-year-olds flying Apache helicopters in Afghanistan. Uh, at, you know, at some point, uh, I think there's a feeling that, okay, uh, if you're old enough to shoulder adult responsibilities, uh, perhaps you should be old enough to, uh, to have adult rights. We've got a couple minutes with Robert J. Cottrell, a law professor at George Washington University, as we talk about uh, gun control in the U.S. What should gun control in America look like? What are the solutions that can be and should be implemented? Okay, I think that part of the problem that we've had with gun control in the United States is, and I've followed uh, sort of the history of, of the gun control movement uh, from the 60s uh, on forward. Uh, part of the problem is that we've had a, a, to an extent, a gun prohibition movement that seems to think that one could develop a gun contr- an approach to gun control similar to the, kind, the kinds of approaches that exist in Europe uh, and to a lesser extent in Canada. Um, and what we really should be looking at instead, and, and that approach, among other things, uh, assumes, one, no right to have a gun, uh, and two, uh, restrictions on types of, of firearms that are actually in fairly common use uh, in the United States. Um, and, and so uh, one of the things is we've had a series of efforts in the U.S. In the, um, on the gun, part of the gun control movement to ban certain types of firearms, which were supposedly the bad guns. And in the 1980s, we were told we had to have bans on handguns, more recently bans on semi-automatic rifles. Um, and what we really should be aiming towards is not finding a particular type of gun and figuring out how to ban it, what we should be doing is developing more robust screening measures as to who should be able, who should be allowed to buy a gun. Yeah, it is too, it is too easy to get one, and we're out of time, and I'll have to apologize for that. We'll have to have you back on uh, sometime down the road to talk about this and give it a little more uh, breathing room. Robert, appreciate your time today. Enjoy the day.
Okay, thank you. And it's Robert J. Cottrell, a law professor at George Washington University, chiming in on what America needs to do to grab a hold of its gun violence. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If you've been following the news lately, you have likely heard about a shortage of baby formula in the United States. And no, American babies have not all of a sudden become gluttonous and devouring formula to no end. The White House says it's treating its shortage of infant formula as a top priority, so much so that military transports were used to fly 35,000 kilograms of formula from Europe to the U.S., and more shipments are on the way. And The question many are asking on this side of the border is, should we be worried about a shortage of baby formula? Well, here to talk about it is Michelle Wasselishan, a national spokesperson for the Retail Council of Canada. Michelle, good morning. Thanks for uh, taking some time out with us. Thank you. Good morning to you. Why is there a shortage of infant formula in the U.S.? What has happened? There has been a a shortage of infant formula both in Canada and the U.S., um, which has uh, really gotten worse um, since about February of this year, so February of 2022. And what happened then was Abbott, which is one of the manufacturers of baby formula, their production facility in Michigan was closed down and they had quite a large product recall. And so since that time, um, we have seen quite a severe shortage of uh, baby formula, particularly in the specialized categories. So I'm referencing hypoallergenic um, brands, so for babies that have allergies and and those kinds of things. Um, also contributing to the issue from what I hear is that the U.S. is controlled by only a handful of major players. How has that played into this whole thing? Um, well, it's played into it a little bit, but I would, you know, I would state up front that there's quite a difference between U.S. and Canada. And so I have seen the situations. I read an article uh, yesterday about how a father drove 1,600 miles uh, in the U.S. to get baby formula. So our situation here in Canada is quite a bit different from that. And that's for a number of different reasons. And so our U- uh, retailers um, utilize their supply chains in different ways. And so the Abbott recall has really had, um, you know, different impacts on our retailers here in Canada, and it can vary from retailer to retailer. But for the most part, one major difference is that in Canada, um, our grocers have very strong private label brands, uh, including in the infant formula category. And that really makes a difference. So um, when you see that there's a major recall from a major label, that can often have a more diffused impact in Canada. There are a couple of other reasons as well, but that's a big one. And, um, you know, so we're not seeing the dire circumstance that we are seeing in the United States. In fact, the majority of our retailers are reporting that the, that, um, the baby formula sections within their stores is, you know, relatively stocked. I had a retailer tell me today that they have about 85 to 90% of their stock. Any shortages that a customer might find when they go into the store should be temporary in nature. Again, the the more concerning um, products are those specialized uh, formulas and um, not so much with the regular formulas. And so, you know, I do want to stress that our situation in Canada um, is, is definitely, if you're a parent and looking for formula and you can't find it, uh, I'm a mom, I can understand how stressful mm-hmm. that would be. But our situation is not, um, you know, the bare shelves that you're seeing in the United States. Michelle Wasselishan is a national spokesperson for the Retail Council of Canada, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. The Prime Minister coming out the other day saying that Ottawa uh, is monitoring the situation closely for fear that the U.S. um, could end up making the shortage in Canada a little bit worse, at least for those specialized 
uh, products. Um, how could they make it worse? Uh, could we see Americans possibly hoarding baby formula because you know they've already been hit with one shortage? They might want to stock up. Well, we don't want to see anybody hoarding formula, whether it's uh, Americans or Canadians. Many of our retailers have put in place buying limitations. And so when you do go into a store, for some retailers, there is a limit on the number of products that you can purchase to ensure that there is enough for everyone. Um, yes, I understand that Health Canada is monitoring the situation closely. Um, one way that they're doing that is that they have put in place an interim policy, and that will allow for certain products to be imported into Canada from other countries. So kind of similar to what you're seeing um, in the United States, what I read about today and um, yesterday. So those products are not normally sold on our Canadian shelves, but the countries that they're coming from, so there are other US states, the United Kingdom, Ireland, and Germany, those countries have similar manufacturing and safety standards to Canada. And so, um, you know, often reasons why these products might not be on our shelves on a regular basis might have to do with labeling, for example. So perhaps their labels aren't in English and French. So that is one of the things that Health Canada is doing. So those products will be allowed to be sold on our shelves. I think it's upwards of 20 products right now. And that policy is in place until the end of December. And so those products aren't here yet. Um, you know, again, our retailers are telling us that there's not a major shortage of those regular formula brands but if they need them they can draw upon them at the same time as i said earlier you know we do have other major manufacturers that produce products for canada it's not just abbott so you know we're not in the same situation that they have been in uh, unfortunately in the united states do you have an inkling on when the situation in the u.s will stabilize and, and the manufacturing plant in michigan will be back online well, Abbott last week said that they could be up and running again within two weeks. Um, you know, I want to stress, though, that once they do get up and running, it still takes some time to get the production going and to ship those products and to get them on store shelves. And so we are still looking at a couple of months. Um, the other thing that we have our eye on are, are the global um, supply chain challenges that we have all been experiencing throughout this pandemic. There is, um, you know, some concern about some of the products that go, the raw ingredients that go into some of the formulas. And so I do also know, um, you know, from speaking with Health Canada, that they are working with manufacturers right now um, to, you know, look ahead of some of those pending shortages. One example might be sunflower oil, uh, a very large percentage, I think it's upwards of 80% of the sunflower oil that we use here in Canada, and, you know, for all products, including our baby formula, comes from the Ukraine. Um, and so you can understand, um, you know, the impact that the uh, horrific uh, war is having right now. And so, you know, even when Abbott gets up and running, we still do have global supply chain challenges that are you know, presenting issues, uh, you know, here, there and everywhere, it seems these days. Very much so. Michelle, uh, thank you very much for your insight and analysis on what is happening, what uh, could happen down the road. So really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Back for 2022 is the Gore Park Summer Promenade. Yeah, this is awesome. A lot of fun, music. I'm sure plenty of sunshine is going to be in the forecast. And here to talk about it from the downtown Hamilton Business Improvement Area is Susie Ozer. Susie, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm not too bad. This is exciting news and especially comes after uh, we didn't get to have a lot of this fun because of the pandemic. 
It is. Yeah. Like I, we were in the same situation as so many other people just couldn't have too many big events and anything really that had lots of gathering outside. So we're really excited to be able to bring this back and maybe a bit of normalcy too for people's schedules in the summer. So for someone who's never been, what is this event all about? What can they see and do? So we basically, we think of it as kind of a mini summer um, festival. So it's a, uh, 11 to 3 p.m. Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, all throughout the summer. So we're starting next week, actually. Tuesday, May 31st is our first day. Um, we have a live band on stage from noon to 2, um, almost all exclusively local Hamilton bands, which is another great um, kind of option for people being able to play live in the park. We haven't had a lot of live music options over the past few years. Um, and we have large-scale um, games in the park. We have seating set up. We have community vendors, so it's really just a place to kind of enjoy the sunshine, enjoy some live music, maybe get out on your lunch break. And it's all free. It is free, yeah, completely free, um, always free. We try to do all of our events as easily as accessible as possible. Looking at the uh, Gore Park Promenade poster, uh, and again, it starts uh, on Tuesday and goes all the way to September 1st, every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday from 11 to 3, there is a ton of musical artists where did you find all these yes um so we've over the years we've built up a good um list of contacts but we have a lot of help from um the local hamilton musicians guild as well a lot of artists are from there um and then a lot of just uh relationships we've built up over the years as well and they're all really very excited to come back and see people in the park again. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Susie Ozer from the downtown Hamilton BIA. And we're talking about uh, the Gore Park Summer Promenade returning for 2022. Kicks off on Tuesday. What were past festivals like and, and, and how popular were they? And what kind of response did you get from people who attended? Um, so past festivals, prior to COVID, we were up to four days a week. Um, we're doing three days to kind of ease back into it and kind of see. We know a lot of people are still on the hybrid work model, might stay on the hybrid work model. So to be midweek, we're trying to see if we can catch the most people, um, the most traffic downtown. Um, in the past, we've had, when it first started, um, there was a lot of emphasis on food trucks. But having seen our food, um, and Promenade started over 10 years ago, so having seen our food scene in downtown Hamilton grow so much, um, there hasn't been as much of a demand for the food trucks since we have so many great restaurants as is existing downtown. So it's really a huge focus has become on the music um, and community vendors as well. We have a lot of nonprofits that find it's a great place to connect with people. Um, in the park during promenade days. Is this a, would you describe this as a nice um, kind of lunch break activity for those who are working downtown or in the area? For sure, yeah. We have a lot of um, a lot of law offices, a lot of the corporate offices, um, people that work downtown that stop by throughout the day on their break. So it's a great option for that. We have a lot of, um, sometimes we have day camps that stop by. Um, so it's a great option just to take a break um, yeah, we're hoping for lots of sun. Um, <laughs> it is rain or shine, uh, but it's a great option just to get out and have some fresh air. Is there anything new this year that you haven't tried in past years? Um, we have, so we have done theme days in the past, but we're trying a few. We have a um, Latin theme day, which is always popular, and we are trying a country theme day um, with a new country band this year, which should be a lot of fun. Um 
And then we have a professional sound tech on site as well this year, which will be great to regulate, just kind of amplify that level of performance for the performers. What kind of response or feedback do you get from area homeowners? Are they happy that this uh, event is on? Do you get some complaints because of noise? I, I mean, it is in the middle of the day, so there shouldn't be much of that. But what kind of feedback do you get from the homeowners around the park? Yeah, we get, um, in the past, we've only had a few issues with noise because it is um, at downtown park, so we can kind of get the sound can get caught a bit in there. Yeah. Um, but with the addition of the sound tech, we have avoided that. We started that in 2019, and we're so happy to have um, him back again. Um, so it's really mitigated any of that kind of issues. And the businesses on ground level uh, around Core Park just love to see the activity in the park. If someone wants more information or they want to look at the lineup of musical guests, where can they go? They can go to our website, downtownhamilton.org, um, and they can follow us on any of our social media channels as well. Uh, we are update their daily once the event starts. Great stuff, Susie. Appreciate the time today. Good luck with the uh, Summer Promenade this year. Thanks so much. That is Susie Ozer from the downtown Hamilton BIA talking to us about Hamilton's Gore Park Summer Promenade returning for 2022 after the pandemic-induced hiatus. It's a 14-week lunchtime festival. It kicks off this coming Tuesday, May 31st, and runs every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And as you heard from Susie, rain or shine. And it goes all the way to September the 1st, uh, 11 to 3 each day. The music goes from noon until 2. And a lot of fun if you're in the downtown area, uh, whether you're working or not, just taking a nice stroll into the park. That's a nice uh, distraction. Nice uh, bout of entertainment uh, on your uh, workday or on your day of relaxation. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Pretty neat story to end the show today. And there's a guy who's starting this weekend is going to be paddle boarding all five Great Lakes. And all for a good cause. Yeah, this is a... A charitable initiative. Mike Shorman is his name. He's the unbalanced paddleboarder and also the author of Diaries of the Unbalanced Paddleboarder, Crash and Rise. Mike, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you? Not too bad. So you're undertaking this um, excursion, if you will, uh, and it all starts this weekend in Lake Erie, right? It does. So we are forecasting that it will go ahead on Sunday because of weather. Uh, we were hoping for Saturday, but it will be Sunday. And so you have a, a, a unique um, cause here that you're going for because you have Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. You are diagnosed in 2018, and it really turned your life upside down, and, and this kind of thrust you into this uh, world of, of giving back and, and making sure others uh, are in a better place. Yeah, so I was a professional paddleboarder. I actually grew up in Hamilton. I went to I went to Westdale, um, and I taught stand up paddleboarding professionally. Um, and then in 2018, I got very sick. I developed a neurological condition, and I couldn't walk. I went from being incredibly healthy and active to spending a year learning how to walk. I I still stagger when when I'm very tired, um, and I've got vertigo. So when I turn my head from side to side or up and down, it's um, I get very dizzy, um, and it caused hearing and speech and vision impairments. So, yeah, this I 
the outlook wasn't very good. They said that I'd never paddleboard ever again. <laughs> um, and I, I increment, I used incremental wind building. Um, I'll do most of all of these crossings sitting down, um, half sitting down, half kind of standing up. And it's for Canada's national youth mental health organization, Jack.org. So they'll be able to put more mental health programs and services in schools. I had a huge mental health breakdown. Um, as a result, they didn't really go over mental health treatment with, with my condition, and, and, it, and it led me to a crisis point, and I just realized I don't want kids to ever feel like I did. So people can go and donate uh, to the cause, jack.org. Do you have a fundraising goal in mind? So it's jack.org forward slash number five Great Lakes. I do have a goal, but, but you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, I've had incredible support. I just met uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger a couple weeks ago. Um, I've met mayors from all over the province who are getting behind us, which is really amazing. Um, I met Vicki Keith, who became the first and the last to cross the Great Lakes in 1988 this week. Cool. We sat down, and she gave me a lot of advice um, and, and, you know, her blessing and told me to go get it. <laughs> so so it's uh it's exciting. The first one the first one is uh is this week and then twelve days later uh we head out to to do the big one, Lake Huron. So you have Lake Erie, Huron, Michigan, Superior, Lake Ontario. When do you hope to be done all this? So it will start this weekend and, and each one has a weather window of about ten days to go on optimal optimal weather days. Um, I am hoping to finish around August 10th to 17th, um, and that will be Maryland Bell's crossing route, um, landing in um, landing in Toronto around Ontario Place wow. area. Well, really quick, because you only got about 30 seconds, what advice did Vicki Keith give you? Oh well, we, we uh, <laughs> she told me she told me to uh, to go in the mornings when I wake up. Uh, we talked about. Um, not uh, being nauseated out there. You know, it took her 40 hours to cross Lake Huron. Um, we talked about what to eat, what to drink, um, you know, what to do when you're hallucinating, all, all that kind of stuff. It was very intense. <laughs> Mike, we wish you nothing but the best of luck. We'll have to catch up with you uh, in August when all is said and done and, and uh, put a nice bow on this. Uh, congratulations thus far on getting all this way and good luck going forward on the, on the five Great Lakes. Thank you very much, Rick. That's Mike Shorman. You can go online, jack.org forward slash the number five Great Lakes. Give to the cause. It is an outstanding uh, initiative that uh, he's going to be a part of, and hopefully we'll raise a lot of money for mental health initiatives. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.